Hi, I'm Elise Kennedy. Welcome to Jardin's Startup Tech Series, where we host entrepreneurs, venture funds, and technology companies on trends across the industry. Today, I've got the pleasure of being joined by Andy Bauer, the founder and CEO of space tech business, Clear Space. Thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So we recently hosted another space company, slightly different to what you do did and done last year, which is why I thought I'm super keen to get your business onto here and to tell us a little bit more about what are you doing in the world of space? Sure. It's uh, yeah, great to be here and good to talk about um, what you can do from space, how important it is, and ultimately how you can monetize it, I think is really important. There's two main sort of purposes of near space, low Earth orbit space, where you put satellites into orbit and do things with them. One is communications, where you use them as mirrors to bounce signals around. The other is Earth observation. So using satellites to collect data about what's going on around the Earth and selling that data. We sit in the Earth observation cap. So we're collecting information around uh, particularly human activity. We're interested in where do we find communication signals? Where do we find navigational signals? How do we locate humans and what they're doing around the Earth and how we can monetize it, how we can sell that to our customers in a wide range of different marketplaces. We don't you know, restrict ourselves to one market, but that's really the essence of what we're trying to do here is collect information around human activity, particularly where you're not expecting it to be, around your coast, around your borders, around your overseas assets, for instance. For instance. So there's a whole range of different applications for that sort of data. That's super interesting. And so what is the origins of the problem you're solving? You know, I find a lot of entrepreneurs like yourself, you start out in the space of thinking, hey, what problem am I trying to tackle here? I think that's it. It's uncovering the hidden. There's a whole load of work that's gone on over the years with GPS, with location devices like AIS, ADSB, for instance, tracking systems, if you like, that are finding known occurrences. So they're finding things that exist. So you're tracking your assets, you're tracking your trucks, you're tracking your people, you're tracking your vessels, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole load of activity that goes on around the world, which is dark activity. doesn't mean it's illegitimate or illegal, but there's a whole load of activity going on there. And how do you find out what's going on there? And how do you use it to either better protect yourself or to improve your knowledge about your intelligence around the world. So it was really just shining a light on that dark activity. That was kind of our objective of the business is just increasing the amount of information. Everybody wants to know what's going on around the world. You know, the world is getting, the risks are increasing, weather's changing, uh, challenges around the world are obviously increasing with both environmental, societal, and obviously that affects the economy as well. So all of those things intelligence is phenomenally useful. We all want more data, whether we're investing in stocks or whether we're wanting to protect our assets. We want data and that's what we're doing. That's what we're in the business of doing is collecting data and selling it. So who are you today are some of your customers that are using some of this data that you're collecting? I think the early adopters with most of Earth observation data, most intelligence data is government customers, mm-hmm. obviously. So We don't sell too much directly into a government-type environment. We usually sell through what is called, you know, people are doing data fusion, bringing different data sets together and selling a derived product or a solution or an answer to a government problem, if you like. We support those analysts, those data fusion guys. That's our customer base. But so most of the applications are 
in a government sense. doesn't mean that we're closing the door to a commercial application either, but commercial applications traditionally follow the government applications because the governments have de-risked it, they've funded the early adopter sort of money, and then you know the commercial market generally comes on as costs come down a wee bit. So that's the path that we're on. Yeah, and when did the business start? Well, we started in 2017 in terms of that's when the company was registered. We started the company in Luxembourg, got a fantastic support from the Luxembourg government. We've got a great program supporting early stage space companies. So we started uh, in 2017, but really the story and the work, the IP started many years before that in labs and you know testing and what have you. And we transferred all that technology into, into Cleos when we started the company. So it's got quite a long heritage, even though the company's only been around for a few years. Yeah. And then what is your geographic footprint now you mentioned its origins? Truly international. I mean, we just have our our final continent that we have yet to get a contract out of Africa. So everywhere on Earth is pretty much covered. Roughly 30% of our market is North America. Roughly 30% is Europe. We've got 10 to 20% is Australasia at this moment in time. Got a good amount in Latin and South America. You know, because of the way that we're you know, collecting data, it was sort of democratizing it to a certain extent where mm. a lot of countries, you know, Chile, Argentina, wherever, might not have had their own government assets to do their coastal surveillance, for instance. We're able to provide data to them at an extremely competitive, extremely cost-effective way, which means that it's something that they can use and uh, deliver solutions with. So really, we're keeping ourselves as wide as we possibly can from customer base. So to make sure that I fully understand the concept, so can you give, without giving away any proprietary, you know, customer information, a type of scenario where somebody will come to you and get that data and, you know, is it a month contract that it takes them? Does it take them a year to negotiate with that? Can you talk us through a case example? Sure. We don't prescribe how the customer is going to work with us. We (laughs) try to be as open, as flexible with the customer as we possibly can be. We have a database which is getting filled up with data. The more data is in that database, the more valuable that database is to the customer. And so therefore, they pay more if they want to access more data. So it's a very simple, scalable pricing model. We sell per million square kilometers. So mm-hmm. it's very similar to an imagery company where we're taking, Tolland, I suppose, is taking a photo of an area in a million square kilometer block. If you want that once a day, once a month, you pay certain amounts depending on how often you want that data. So the more satellites we have in space, the more often we can collect that same data set and the value goes up. The more area that you want, obviously, the more you pay as well. So it's based on a fixed pricing per million square kilometers per month. And Mm -hmm. then we scale that pricing up depending on the customer. Obviously, smaller customers who are only interested in their own small coastlines, it means that they're not paying very much. And it gives them access to that data, which, as I said, kind of democratizes things that perhaps was only available to Americans before smaller countries are able to access this sort of data now. Larger countries like the UK, America, France, et cetera, they want global data. They want everything we can collect. So their contracts are obviously higher in value there. So that's how we sell in terms of volume. It's a volume-based pricing. We tend to obviously work on a monthly basis in terms of our contracts. We're generally only working out to about six months in some cases for contracts and proposals perhaps out to 12 months at a stretch. We're trying not to push out too far in advance in that sense because we're continually launching satellites and Mm -hmm. increasing the value and volume of our data. So we don't really want to lock our pricing in too long in terms of a period of time because we want people to continue to grow with us 
And so we will, you know, lock people in. I think the important thing is, is that, you know, the customer never owns the data. They just have a license to access the data. So when they stop paying for it, they stop getting access to it, which makes it quite sticky because intelligence analysts obviously want to continue having that source of data and they build workflows around that data set, which means that they don't want to lose it. So they continue to subscribe. So we've got a good surety with regard to keeping subscribers on board. But what we want to be able to do is have the flexibility to upsell once we have more valuable increasing value in the data sets. Yeah, super interesting. We'll touch on a few of those, you know, customer stickiness and uh, return numbers later in our chat. I'm curious, how do you reach these customers? What's your sales model? Um, We've got a couple of different methods there, three different methods. One is we have local resellers that are truly what we call channel partners. So these are guys who have already got the local marketplaces sort of sewn up. They are already selling usually other space space data. So they might be selling imagery data from Planet or from Maxar. They bolt on our data and they sell the same another data set into their end user customers in that particular location. So we've got a number of resellers or channel partners that work in that way. And they work off a list price, lesser discount to all intents, you know, and that pays for their local sales support. Second way is through integrators. So these are people that are bringing data in and then doing something with the data and then selling a derived product. So that's sort of, they're a direct customer, but not the end user. The end user is somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so they might be passing that cost on to the end user and we can sell through those end users a solution through our integrators. Sometimes a channel partner and an integrator are the same person. They fulfill both sides of things. The third way is, so directly, we have a really great business development team that is very much focused on building you know, partnerships and friendships with our customers and the ability to create those sort of relationships, those long-term trusting relationships. We've got a number of BD in uh, the US, strong in um, Europe for certain, and that gives us some good geographic capability for direct sales. They also then run some of the resellers or channel partners, for instance. You know, we've got a great uh, channel partner in Australia called SIPAC, particularly in the COVID time period. It's next to impossible to travel into Australia. So we don't try and sell direct into Australia. We've got a very trusted channel partner there in SIPAC who also do integration for us as well that support the product and all those good things. So we run it in those basic three ways at this stage to access the market. It keeps our costs as low as possible. We're... focused on getting this business to profitable status as quickly as possible. That is the purpose of the company. But we do that through keeping our OPEX as low as we possibly can, because CapEx is obviously high in this sort of business. So keep our OPEX low, utilize networks already exist, and there's many of them around, and deploy as fast as we can. Yeah, we will touch on that cost acquisition again later. I'm curious about the industry. Do you size out what your target industry is, like those that are looking for data? I know you mentioned you're in, you know, some of the government verticals now globally, but can commercialize that in time. When you look at your market, how do you think about it? You know, there's a couple of different ways of looking at it. What we try to do is not specify what the end use case is of the data. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is we're not an expert in all of those end use cases. What Mm -hmm. we're an expert in is collecting valuable data, geospatial data. It's a similar sort of data set as a GPS-based data set that, you know, lots of applications in your phone use every day. What we don't want to do is we are in a similar position to, let's say, you know, the inventors of GPS, 
when yep. they created that for defence purposes to so that soldiers knew where they were in the field very, very accurately. They never envisaged Uber would exist and yeah. could not exist without GPS. Uber is a space company. It's deploying space data. The whole business model is based around space data. Mm. If we were able to monetize that sort of application by supporting app developers, by enabling a network and a community to develop those applications that we don't have the knowledge to know about, I think that's something that we're really trying to achieve here, enabling those geospatial data-based products to be developed. I'm not suggesting we're going to create another Uber. But the point is, we never know. And that's the thing that we're trying to encourage by encouraging that app developer network. That said, on the flip side, we obviously do understand our core marketplaces that we're focused on today. And we're very much focused on the defense, the military, security aspects, regulatory aspects are looking at illegal fishing, environmental damage, et cetera, caused by people acting illegally. And then there's the commercial sort of more maritime type applications as well. So we've got a number that we focus on, but we try not to be too specific. We try to be relatively agnostic with regard to the application for the data. Let's move on to the competitive landscape. So you mentioned, you know, GPS, there's Google, there's guys like that, that I feel as though perhaps are they playing in that space or are you doing something that's different? How do you differentiate and where do you sit in that competitive landscape? You know, when the company was created, the concept for the business was created, which was six or seven years ago in terms Mm. of the first business plan being written. The objective was that this business was a a niche vertical. And I mean niche in a very, very positive sense, in a niche way that was Mm. complementary to other data sets, to other services that were around. So we recognized that there was a, a gap there that was exceptionally valuable, that could provide a valuable data set that could enable all sorts of other things to happen that nobody else was doing that could sit just between all those other data sets. And that's really what we found. And we've targeted specifically that niche. We've not tried to be too wide. We've not tried to do too much. We've not tried to do our analytics. We've not tried to build software. We've not tried to do too much in that sense, but focused on our core business plan, which is a niche and valuable geospatial data set that we can sell into a wide range of marketplaces. So I think that's really our approach to the market is to be as complementary as possible to lots of other data sets and to support the end user or, or the analytic guys, which is really our customer base. Yeah. And so if you are going and negotiating a contract with a customer, are you finding you're replacing something? Are you feeling in a white space and a need that they're now needing that perhaps they didn't? Um, If you have come up against another competitor, is that competitor listed or private? Yeah, so, so I suppose there are obviously our competitors, you know, looking at doing similar things. And I think that's healthy because it's an interesting market and it's, you know, a valuable marketplace and valuable data. So, of course, there's going to be competitors. What we're not really finding is a sort of direct competition in a lot of senses. It, there's a complementary aspect to what we're doing. I mean, to put it really crudely, our satellites when they're collecting data, are never in the same position as somebody else's satellites collecting data. So Mm. the data is always complementary. It just, it's a truism. You can't avoid that. So what we are finding from a customer perspective is that the desire for more data to get more intelligence about what's going on, what they call situational awareness. They want to know what's happening around them, their borders, their assets, whatever it might be. They need that human activity intelligence. There appears to be no cap to that i'm sure there will be and i'm sure it will cap at some point you know of course there's a cap but we're not seeing any cap in that desire 
for more volume where we have to say, okay, I think we've touched the limits here. We're not going to see that for probably another two or three years is my prediction. Yeah. And what stops other new entrants from coming into your space? Ultimately, you know, it's my belief that there's no insurmountable barrier to entry in any market. It doesn't matter where you're working at. With enough money and enough time, you should be able to solve most problems mm. you know, and create another Amazon or whatever with enough cash behind you, of course. <laughs> so I don't think that there's any business that has an insurmountable mount, uh, mount or whatever. So what we do is we try and stay as far ahead as we possibly can and we just mm-hmm. push as hard as we can and work as fast as we can. And that's really the sort of approach that we, we go at. There are a few natural barriers to entry. We, you know, we're the only people in the world flying clusters of four satellites. It's technically complicated. Uh, mm-hmm. And we have some very, very skilled people that are enabling that to happen. So there's a technological barrier to entry there, as well as obviously all the signal processing, all the IP that we have on the ground for doing all the algorithms and all that clever stuff that the signals guys do and software guys do in our company. So there's a a range of challenges there that are hurdles for new entrants to overcome. With enough time and money, they could overcome those because, of course, that will happen over a period of time. But we're talking a number of years and many millions of dollars, certainly, in terms of getting over that hurdle, you know, especially as we move into certainly into strong revenues and certainly into profitability over the coming quarters and year, we will attract more entrants into the market because they can see people making money. So, of course, you're going to want to try and join that marketplace. So I think that's incumbent on us then to keep moving forward, making sure that we dominate the market as quickly as we possibly can, take as much of that market share as we possibly can over that short time period of the next probably two or three years. And we've got a good opportunity to do that now. Whilst also building trust in our customer base, because you know it's all very well delivering product. But if you start to kind of, you know, if you're not nice to deal with, if you're not supportive, if you're not helping your customers, if you're charging too much or whatever the approach is, you'll also lose some customer base and people start to look around for other people. If we're doing all the things we need to do, good customer service, good quality data, trustworthy capability, good you know support around them, I think we've got a, a good few years before we're going to be seriously challenged. Yeah. And then if we think about the you know ramp up period of those customers, does it take a period of time for them to start to use the product? I know it might be too early phase again. Not really. And the reason for that is the data is uh, via the API is, is that it's pretty easy to ingest. It's a geospatial data set. So it is a, a point on a map. So the way the analyst would ingest it is they bring it in through an API. They display it on that mapping environment, which is showing different sort of flags and a map, if you like, with some metadata around it to say what we've found in that particular area, the time that we found it, how long we found it for, et cetera, that they then layer with a range of other data sets. And that creates something called activity-based intelligence, which mm-hmm. is sort of a common way the analyst is working now. So they layer it with optical imagery, send that to capture radar imagery to find that needle in the haystack with regard activity. And so that they can, what they call tip and cue, other assets. So that's why it's valuable to the analyst. So rather than the analyst having to look at a big photo of blue ocean, trying to work out if there's any risk there or any challenge there, if we're able to say, there's something within a few hundred meter sort of radius, take a photo of this small area 
and work out what's going on, the whole timeline is sped right up. So mm. they can find the risks much faster. And then it means the decisions can be made much quicker. Action can be taken much faster, which is how value proposition. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned about the CapEx profile being, you know, one of the key contributors right now to the cash flow, which is so common in the space that you operate. Where are you thinking about the next few months in that type of deployment? How many more satellites? Is there a number? When does it start making that switch from more your OPEX business than CapEx business orientation? Yeah, I think there is always going to be quite a significant CapEx element to what we're doing. You know, we are building up to a cadence at the moment we're launching about every six months. Every time we launch, there's a considerable shift in technology for every set of satellites. So we're not just launching more physical assets, we're launching much more capable assets as well. Mm -hmm. So we're keep, we're generational shifts are about every six months at this point, point in time. Looking to improve that probably in 23 to be more like every three or four months with regard to those yep. getting to a quicker cadence at that point in time. In terms of volume of yep. clusters, so we're flying clusters of four, there is a sort of, if you like, a cap at 20 clusters. There's no point in launching 21 because you don't get a better revisit time. So 20 is about a cap. However, what we're really doing is matching our launches and expenditure on CapEx on customer adoption. So this is what we're able to do over the next 12 to 24 months is as customers get online and are spending more and wanting more data, we will match our CapEx to that demand so that therefore we're not overstretching ourselves in building too big a field and hoping mm. they will come. We're trying to sort of get that balance right. And that will start to happen in 22 for sure. We have been over the last year, obviously, still at a little bit more needing to build out the capability, mm. needing to build up enough data that turns into revenues, but we're, we're clearly at that point now. Yeah, fantastic. And one of my last questions ask all companies I host is just around M&A. You know, does it help for you to scale by M&A activity or if you've got enough on your plate to be able to just keep going organically? No, I think the business going back to how I was describing earlier is it was developed as a niche to solve a particular problem and fit into a particular data set. That obviously has at a certain point a cap with regard growth, you would think, you know, because ultimately you've got mm -hmm. all the customers or whatever their cap is. So clearly at that stage or, you know, at that point, you will have had to have put in place some form of growth mm -hmm. through non-organic growth, so acquisition. I think the concept behind bolting on complementary data sets that, you know, as I was describing a lot of these data sets are very, very complementary to each other. Bolting on additional complementary data sets mm -hmm. is clearly something which is um, advantageous and will help us grow massively. And, I, you know, I've been, I've spoken publicly before about how this marketplace is really ripe for consolidation, because whether you take a kind of string of pearls approach, whether you have, you know, these multiple data sets, or you try and bring in the vertical integration through, through satellite build, launch, data sets and analytics, and you bring it in from that perspective, I think by the vertical or horizontal integration is key for the growth for the sector. And there will clearly be some activity around that. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again, Andy Bauer, the founder and CEO of space tech business, Cleos Space. Anybody listening in, it is listed this stock, so it is KSS in the ASX. It is its sticker. Can't wait to hear a little bit more, Andy. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Elise.